pastor. I look here, you have two pastors that one plays the guitar and the other the drums. I've always wanted to be musical, and you guys got it. Thank you. Um, thanks for the prayer, guys. My name is Adam. I am the executive director at the Factory Ministries. Uh, I am here. Um, Tim invited me in to share. I'm going to share a little bit about the factory, but really I'm going to share the heart behind why would we do what we do, which ultimately I think um, will serve you in a powerful way even as we step into Thanksgiving this week. I want to start by saying a big, big thank you for those of you that were part of the Extra Give. Um, you saw that we came just shy of $72,000. Um, if you're watching that online, absolutely mine. I mean, it just was, it was humbling to see that and be a part of that. We did get cash gifts throughout the day that actually don't include, it, that don't go into that ticker. So we actually cleared 72. Just a huge um, thank you. I've said 2020, a lot of people were bemoaning 2020 and saying, oh, this year's so awful. I think this year has brought the best out in so many of us. When you see a community rally around in that way, it is a powerful thing to behold. Uh, secondly, I want to say thank you for the turkeys. Yesterday, we gave out um, 160 uh, Thanksgiving meals. Uh, so a big thank you to that. And then finally, I'll say thank you to the chicken barbecue. Uh, the family that cooks the chicken barbecue is here in this church, and that chicken barbecue is Unbelievable. I never had chicken barbecue like it. So that was fun to have at the extra give um, in the evening. Uh, with that said, let, let, here's what I want to ask you to kind of engage you with a question this morning. This church, I love being here at this church. Uh, you guys really understand, and it's a part of your DNA and your vision of what it is to step into the community and make a difference. I think I hear you, I hear Tim say it a lot, you want to be a presence in the town square for the spiritual and What's the rest of the statement? I don't know. Maybe social and cultural good. There you go. I'm like, I know I've heard it many a times. So you guys get this. It's a part of your, but let me ask this question. Why do we serve the poor? Why do we serve the poor? Just take a moment to kind of grab an answer of why we serve the under-resourced, the marginalized, those that are hurting, those that don't have what maybe I have. Why do we do it? Now, there's a lot of answers you're going to pull, and if I pass the mic around, and I'm going to hear a lot of answers, but probably one answer that's going to kind of rise above all the others is something along James 1.27. Pure and undefiled religion is to serve the orphan and the widow, the marginalized, those that are on the outside, those that don't have, those that have, been, have had a shorter, um, shorter opportunities and resources in life. You're going to quote maybe Matthew 25, and you're going, to, you're going to give some kind of mandate, probably from the scriptures, that say this is why we serve the poor, uh, and a lot of other reasons that you'll give as well. Now, that's a phenomenal reason. I want to give you one that goes deeper than that. I'm going to give you one. If you, if you turn, I know this is, I like to do this when I preach, but it's a little tricky with COVID. So chances are you're sitting beside people you can just turn to them and just say, whiff them. I only heard one person do it. I didn't see any of you turn. Are we awake this morning? I bet the people online are turning right now in their PJs at the couch and saying, whiff them. So go ahead, turn to the person and say, whiff them. You're like, Adam, I don't like to do this. I know, just bear with me. Say it. Go ahead, turn to them and say, whiff them. Whiff them. You know what whiff them means? Here's what whiff them stands for. I want to share with you. Um, when you hear me talk about serving the poor, some of you come in here this morning, your marriage is barely hanging on. 
Some of you are here watching online, and you have broken relationships. You're trying to figure out what to do uh, this week with Thanksgiving, and now the orders that our governor has asked of the people traveling and gathering, and what do we do, and how do we do it? You're probably wrestling maybe with um, fears in your job, or there's anxiety or depression that you're battling, or a number of things, and you think, oh my goodness, I don't really need to hear another message on serving the poor. I need something that's going to speak deep to my heart and my soul. Well, I believe this message is going to do that. You know what WIFM stands for? I, well, I was a young pastor, uh, fresh out of college, moving up to central Pennsylvania, up outside of Lewistown, up in Mifflin County, served there for four years as an associate pastor. I get up there, I have, I'm married, uh, and ha we have a small, uh, actually, we moved when he was two months old, our oldest son, who's now 18, going to be 18. Um, we get there, and as I'm beginning to learn, I remember a mentor in my head that said, Adam, when you engage leaders in the church, you, they may not have gone to school for pastoral ministry. They may not know, have learned all of how to, how to put a message together, but they have a lot to offer you. Learn from the leaders around you. So there's a leader in our church, his name was Jim, and I looked to him and I said, this guy is wise, I think I've got something to learn. So I scheduled lunch at the uh, OIP, the original Italian pizza, if any of you guys have been up in that area, maybe you have hunting cabins up in that area. We go and we sit down in downtown Lewistown, and I begin to ask questions, and I, I'm asking these questions, get to the very final question of the, of the lunch, and I say, Jim, if you could just share one leadership principle with me, just one that's shaped your leadership more than anything else, what would it be? And he turned at me and he said, whiff him, W-I-I-F-M. He even wrote it on a napkin, turned it around and handed it to me. He said, Adam, do not forget this lesson. I said, what does it mean? Whiff him stands for what's in it for me. You say, that sounds selfish. That sounds, he says, Adam, I assure you, every human being on this planet that you're going to lead ever, is asking that question. That's how we're wired, it's our nature, and you can fight against it all you want with your altruistic, idealistic thinking, or you can simply join them. So what I'd like to do this morning is join you in asking what's in it for me. Serving the poor, there is something deeply rooted in it for you that just might put your marriage back together, that just might heal your depression, that just might give you the answers you're looking for of how to navigate 2020 and the brokenness that you feel and engage day in and day out. To do that, let me unpack for you. Um, tell the story. If you turn with me to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. There's a guy named Paul in the scriptures. If you're around, Ben, if you're here at Grace Point, you've probably heard about Paul, right? He, he's written much of what we call the New Testament. He hated Jesus Christ and anyone who had anything to do with Jesus Christ. And then he meets Jesus Christ on a road to Damascus where he's going to kill other Christ followers. Jesus shows up and he blinds him. And he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he says, head into town, and you're going to meet a guy. And he goes into town, and he meets a guy. This guy introduces him to Jesus Christ. Saul becomes a Christ follower. His name changes to Paul. He then makes it his mission, his absolute mission, to go around and make sure everyone can hear about Jesus Christ. He moves out from the Jewish faith that Christianity kind of born out of, as Jesus Christ was the Jewish Messiah, and he reaches out to the non-Jews, the Gentiles, of, of all kind of there around the eastern seaboard of the Mediterranean Sea. He's heading out with a passion 
He now is becoming persecuted himself. He plants churches all over. Um, In Galatians chapter 1 and 2, he begins to tell his story. He shares how he came to know Jesus. He talks about how he spent time out in the wilderness with Jesus for three years. He talks about the super apostles, Peter, James, and John, and the relationship that he has with them. He's talking about his mission to the Gentiles. He's he's talking about the gospel message of Jesus Christ, and he gets all excited and juiced and, and wound up about this. And then he says, I was called to Jerusalem, and I was nervous. Now, he's going down, if you read Galatians 1 and 2 in conjunction with Acts 15, he's going down to Jerusalem for the Jerusalem Council, where they've begun to pull together because this faith that um, has born out of Judaism has gone much broader than Judaism because Genesis chapter 15 foretold of this. It said, listen, the Jewish faith, says Abraham, back in then, some of you know the Old Testament, the father of Jews, says, listen, you are going to be a blessing to all nations, to all people. Well, it's happening now. It's coming true. And the Jewish people are like, whoa, 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 hold on. Because these Gentiles are out here, and they're following Jesus, but they haven't embraced the Jewish culture. They haven't embraced circumcision. They haven't embraced a lot of the, the meat and the, the, the dietary laws. They've just kind of gone out here doing their thing, like, well, we just need to be Christ followers. And so this whole debate follows out. So they call Paul down to Jerusalem and say, we've got to have a meeting. Don't you love that? We've got to have a meeting. Church meetings, you got to love them. we got to have a meeting. Let's come down and talk about this. So Paul heads down. He says, I'm nervous. He's nervous not because he's going to meet the super apostles. He makes that very clear in, in Galatians 1 and 2. What he's nervous about, he says, I'm nervous because the gospel of Jesus Christ was at stake. And it can't be wrapped up in a Jewish culture. It's got to be freer and bigger than that. So he heads down and he presents his case and he interacts in Acts chapter 15 for tells this story, right? And I don't want to read the whole thing to you. You can read the back and forth and the presentation. It's kind of like in a courtroom, right? They're, they're presenting their arguments and James is presiding over the, over the council. James, the half-brother of Jesus. And it gets down to the very verse 19. Acts chapter 15, verse 19. They, they make a ruling. He says, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Powerful verse. This church gets that. In other words, let's not wrap the gospel up in a Jewish tradition and culture. Let's not make these Gentiles go get circumcised. Let's not make these Gentiles apply. It's simply about following Jesus Christ, and let's not get it all wrapped up with our Jewish culture. Instead, verse 20, instead we should write to them, telling them to abstain from, they only give two things here, abstain from food polluted by idols. So this is really at the heart of it. Let's not get all wrapped up in idol worship. There is one true God, period, end of story. So food polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, from the meat of strained animals, and from blood. So it kind of gives this, this dietary thing, and then this, this physical sexual purity. It's all they give to them. That's all we want. Now, when Paul, turn flippantly over to Galatians, just a few pages, go back towards the back of your Bible, just a few more pages, Galatians chapter 2. When Paul comes, Paul is writing this story, and he's writing to the church in Galatia, and he recounts what this council says. Look with me at Galatians chapter 2, verse 8. It says, For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter and an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. All they ask, what did they ask? Remember last time, don't make it difficult. Hold on to these few things. Look at what Paul says. 
All they ask was to continue to remember what? What's it say? To continue to remember the what? The poor. That's all they ask. Just please remember the poor. They're like, no, wait a minute, Paul, um, you weren't listening. <laughs> they had some other things. We don't have recorded all the conversation in Acts 15, but what Paul comes away with is we have to remember the poor. So here's what I want you to hear. Here's the heart of this morning. The gospel, the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the heart of the church of Jesus Christ. Any church that is not proclaiming the truth and beauty and the goodness and the good news of the freedom that you have in Jesus Christ, in my opinion, is not a New Testament church. That is the church's primary mission. Tied up with that is serving the poor. The two cannot be pulled apart. God puts these two together and says, keep them together. Now today, for whatever reason, I don't know, in our Western faith, we have churches that tend to pull apart on this one. You have a certain denomination that there's a lot of in this area that doesn't proclaim the gospel much, but they certainly do get involved with social justice and serving the poor with passion. You have some other churches in this area that, man, they are passionate about proclaiming the truth of Jesus Christ and the scriptures. They will do it up one side and down the other, but they don't serve the poor as their primary mission. God says, keep them together. And keeping them together, the reason God, I believe, wants it to happen is for you and for me. It's for our own benefit. Do you know why? When you take serving the poor out of the gospel, you end up with a very cruel gospel. It's not the gospel anymore. You say, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, let me tell you a couple stories. First, let's look at Ephesians. Ephesians just... Two, three pages back from Galatians, Ephesians chapter 2. These are verses that probably, probably, uh, if you've not been exposed to these verses, I would encourage you to try and memorize these verses. These are powerful truths and central truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It says Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. So how do you, how do you become a Christian? It's grace, something given to you that you don't deserve. Through faith, it's, it's this, I'm going to trust it. I'm going to take God at his word. I'm going to take Jesus at his word. And it's by grace, through faith, that you're saved. And this is not from yourselves. You didn't do this. You didn't create this. You didn't make this possible. It's not because you were kind of a nice guy or a nice girl. It's because you were really lovable and huggable. And everyone was like, man, I'm the stuff. It has nothing to do with you. Look what it says, it is a gift of God, not by works. You didn't do it by your good works so that no one can boast, because it's really not about you. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That is the gospel message in a nutshell. It's not about you. <laughs> it's not what you did. Now, here's the beauty of keeping serving the poor and the gospel wrapped up together, because when you truly journey with those that are poor, you begin to realize they're not poor because of their poor decisions. I am amazed that people who disconnect begin to live life. There's a politician that I sat with, I sit with from time to time, serves in Washington, who, who, who his campaign this past year was all about, he talks about, it. when he sat with me, when we sat one-on-one -on -one and had a conversation, he came to the factory to learn what we do, we're having this one-on-one -on -one conversation, and he begins to talk about his, his mantra, which is, the American dream is alive and well. Now, this guy's a Christ follower. The American dream is alive and well. 
I'm absolutely for it because we are a nation that we built on the backs of hard work and good choices. He says, I'm all about empowerment. I hate the entitlement programs. He says, I am a result of the choices that I have made. Now, is that statement wrong? Parents in the room, you're going to say, no, I tell my kids that all the time. You make poor choices, you've got a mess in life to deal with nine times out of ten. You make good choices, things are going to generally turn out good. Galatians chapter 6 says it very clearly. You reap what you sow. But is that the totality of life? Is every person who's poor, poor because of their bad choices? No. (laughs) Not at all. Time and chance happen to us all. Ecclesiastes says it very clearly. So I remember engaging with him, and I said to him, I said, hey, I said, can I ask you a question? You honestly believe you're where you're at because of your choices and your hard work? He said, absolutely. And he tells me his story, and his story was compelling. It was moving even. And I said, so along the way, you had no gifts. You had no one to help you. You stood on no one's shoulders. You were 100% self-made. He starts to get, we, it's one of those things where I think he's starting to sense that I'm pushing, and at that point, you know, that's when we kind of both check out a conversation. We're like, ah, let's preserve the relationship and just go our separate ways. But I'll tell you, my life, where I'm at today, I've stand on a lot of people's shoulders. I've got resources that, that I, had, I had three of my four years of college paid for. Now, when you, some of you may be listening online or watching this, you're like, well, oh my goodness. I pay a mortgage every month just to pay off my college, and it's a noose around my neck. It was a gift that was given to me. So there are a couple stories that really drive this home. When I was at Super Value um, Food Distribution, where I worked for uh, two, two and a half years, I was a, a supervisor there. We hired, we hired 15 people every two weeks and only retained 25% of them. It was a brutal workforce. It was a hard environment. Now, it was a unionized shop. Now, I really never worked with the union before. All I had grown up in a family where my father taught me a lot about the the ills of the union. Uh, He ran a business, and he said, Adam, unions succeed where management fails. And I still remember it. And I I will preach that harder than ever after being in a unionized shop. Unions succeed where management fails. So I'm sitting with a friend after, after um, having a conversation. I told this story because he was like, he hated unions. So we're talking about this. And, and I said, well, l- let me tell you this story. And you tell me what this guy should have done. There was, a, there was an employee. Now, this, what, what they tried to do, because they were unionized, the employees were protected. They were really, super value was really big on safety. Uh, we, sh- we threw 40,000 pounds around a night, every, the average worker. It's a hard physical job. So injuries were, were common. And so what they tried to do is say, we can't prevent all injuries, but we can prevent the injuries of people doing things that they should not have done where they end up getting injured. So when they do things they should not have done, it was a guaranteed you're terminated and you're gone. Um, they don't like people hanging around. They just, they clean house in a hurry. That's, you have this constant revolving door. So this guy ends up getting injured. He, he, let me tell you who he is. He, he comes from New York City. He's a first generation American. He can speak very little English. He's struggling in New York City. He's struggling with his environment. He's struggling with substances. He's struggling. So he says, I need a new start. So he moves down between Reading and Lancaster to find, the, to find his American dream, to work hard, to make it. He comes to Super Value. He gets the job. He's 
working hard. He's excelling. He's, he's a great employee. And then he gets injured. Now, his injury was not his fault. They did a big investigation, so they couldn't fire him. So they put him on light duty. Now, having him on light duty, the company doesn't like it. Because when he's on light duty, it goes against what's called their throughput number. Their throughput number is what they, what they ultimately drive to show the revenue, which ultimately shows to the, the shareholders, which throughput's a really big, this number's a really big deal. We cannot have someone on light duty. We need every person on the clock throwing heavy cases all night long. So like, okay, we got to get rid of this guy. So he comes into the office at night, overnight job. He walks in, he says, okay, what's my, what's my light duty job? And they say, well, we don't really have anything for you tonight other than this. And they hand him a bucket of water and a rag. And they said, head out to the meat room. The meat room is 35 to 42 degrees. And we want you to scrub the racks down. He walks out. I'm standing there. I'm like, I'm a supervisor and I'm watching this supervisor. And I have this, I'm like, you cannot do that. Are you kidding me? He leaves, and they, they, they start talking amongst themselves, and they start saying, well, my goodness, um, this ought to get rid of him. He walks back in in an hour. His hands are glowing red because he's been out there faithfully scrubbing the racks in a 38-degree temperatured room and his hands dipping in and out of water. He says to the supervisor, he holds out his hands, and he shows them, and he says, I, can I have a break? The supervisor looks up at the clock and says, what time is your break? He tells him, he says, well, in my calculation, that's still two hours away. You may gladly take a break now, but you can also then walk out the door and consider yourself having quit. He doesn't know what to do. What would you do in that situation? He walks out. He loses his job. His livelihood. He was making $18 an hour, which is good money. Good money. He doesn't know how to support his family, so guess what he does? He calls the union. They file a grievance. That supervisor ends up disciplined. He gets his job back. I'm sitting with my friend talking about unions and telling this story. Here's what he says to me. He says, well, Adam, he could have hired a lawyer. Unions are terrible. Now, I'm not going to get into whether unions are good or not. I still believe what my dad says. Unions succeed where management fails. Management failed here, so the union was succeeding. I looked at my friend, and I said, how does he hire a lawyer? How does he do that? See, so many of us begin to live life thinking, I'm in control of my life. I'm a self-made man. I work hard. I make good decisions. But you are standing on a lot of good resources. You can't go hire a lawyer when you have no resources, no connections, no money. First-generation American. What I love is when we keep serving the poor wrapped up with the gospel and we walk in journey. I'm not just talking about handing money out and handing food out. I'm talking journeying with the poor. We begin to realize, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. I remember one time I'm sitting and I'm in a, I'm in a room with other church leaders and they're talking. He says, well, you know, we were going to help so-and-so, but we, did, we went to visit them in their home. They live in a trailer park and we go walk in and they can't make rent. And we look in there, here they have cable TV. So we told them, you got to get rid of your cable TV before we, before we pay your rent. And I remember sitting there thinking, really? <laughs> Some of you are going, what's wrong with that, Adam? They should get rid of it. They don't. Cable TV is a privilege. I say, well, I would ask you to go home, pull out your checkbook or get online and look at it. How much money did you spend in the last month in entertainment? They have no way to entertain themselves. They're struggling day in and day out. $60, $70 a month on cable TV is cheap entertainment. 
to soothe your pain and your ache. Should they have cable TV? It might be nice to get rid of cable TV, but let's let it be their decision. Let's journey with them and let's see and to sit and realize how they ended up in this position. And it's oftentimes not because of their choices. Someone else will say, well, I can't help them because they're smoking a pack a day. You know what that costs? Of course they can't pay their bills. And I say, well, you know what? <laughs> I'm on level 6,250 of Candy Crush. Now, the young people in the room might be going, well done. The other guys in the room, everyone else in the room is going, are you kidding me? It's a coping mechanism. That's not all bad. I'm stressed at the end of the day, and I'm like, oh, or night before I go to bed, and I get my phone out, and I start playing Candy Crush. Praise God, I wasn't drawn to alcohol or cigarettes. So I could give story after story after story. Brene Brown says it well. Compassion is not a relationship between the healer and the wounded. It's a relationship between equals. Only when we know our own darkness well can we be present with the darkness of others. Compassion becomes real when we recognize our shared humanity. Now, how's this fix your marriage? You're like, Adam, you sort of make the connection. Let me make the connection. Where I got this idea was from my therapist. I have battled my entire adult life, teenage life, with the reality that God loves me. I have, I'm an Enneagram one. Anyone about the Enneagram? It's a perfectionist. I am running hard all the time. I'm constantly trying to earn and merit and drive towards something. And it goes bad on you. I've always battled with, okay, I came to Jesus by faith, but now I'm a Christian, I got to work to keep my faith. That's not, no, it's, I came to Jesus by faith, I now live by faith. But what I've learned over time is that the more I focus on the things I need to change, the less they change. When the law increases, guess what happens? Sin increases. How do I change? I grow deeper in the gospel. So I'm sitting with my therapist, and my therapist says to me, Adam, I don't know. I mean, we, have, we, we go round and round about this stuff, and he's trying to help me. Finally, he just says it to me. Adam, you, you, you are in an industry that serves the poor. If anyone gets this, you should get it. And I'm like, what does that mean? He goes, when you keep serving the poor and the gospel connected, you understand the gospel does not cruel. It's kind because you see your humanity. You understand the gift and the grace of Jesus Christ and allows you to step into it. You understand that life isn't all about your hard work and your choices and, and everything that you have done. It keeps the gospel so human and real and grace-oriented. And can I just say, something I love about Grace Point, there are a lot of churches today. I was a pastor for nine years, and I'm guilty of this, that stand on stages like this and ab- what, what we are advocating is nothing more than Old Testament moralism. And I'm like, that's not the answer. Yes, please obey the law. But we don't obey the law by focusing on obeying the law. We obey the law by focusing and going deeper and deeper, allowing the gospel message to confront me in places and tear apart and do surgery in me. That's how I move forward, and serving the poor. So with them, what's in it for you? Let me end and pray for you. What's in it for you? Serving the poor, truly walking with others, sitting with them and hearing their story. You begin to realize, oh my goodness, they're not in this place because of their choices. Same as me. 
I'm not in this place because of my choice. I'm in this place because of the grace that's been bestowed upon me. Father, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you um, for the grace and the mercy that has been stowed upon us in the person of Jesus Christ. God, would you drive it into our hearts in deep ways? Drive it deep in our heart that we cannot fix our problem with you. We can't fix it. God, you stepped towards us in the person of Jesus Christ because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were your enemy and you moved in our direction. God, the life as we come alive to that and realize the spiritual riches we have, not because of the things that I've done. It's God, help us to be people that live by grace, that receive grace, and in turn can give grace. That realize how much we've been forgiven, because when we realize how much we've been forgiven, we in turn love so much. God, help us to walk with the poor, not as a project, not as a thing we got to do, not as a command from you, but out of compassion and shared humanity as we journey with people and listen to their stories and begin to understand that they're where they're at. It's not all their own choice. They've had trauma and hardship thrown at them that many of us would make the same choices in those same circumstances. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for this church, Grace Point. God, a church, a point of grace in our community that cares about the community, that's rolling its sleeves up and is serving. Thank you for this church. Thank you for Tim. God, I know this has been a hard season for pastors and churches. This has been a hard season. God, would you, would you speak to Tim's heart? Would you strengthen him and Greg and Kevin and the rest of the leaders here? Would you strengthen them with bold courage? to continue to step into our community with grace and the good news of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray.